I'm Phil DeLuca. I'm Shivam Putt. And we are Commander In. Thanks for listening, everybody. We put a spotlight on community issues, but never, ever talk about three banned topics. Nope. Religion, politics, and Hearthstone. What? what, what now, now, what? we never, ever talk about these things, but ever is a really long time. We never. It turns out sometimes we can bend the rules a little bit. Especially when we have a really, really cool guest. Well, maybe for a really, really cool guest, but what rules are we bending? Oh, uh, you know, probably going to be talking a little bit about religion, maybe a little bit about politics today. What? Uh, yeah. Sorry, Phil. My coup is finally complete. (laughs) This is now Shiv Mandarin, and uh, the game's a little different, so... Buckle in, listeners. This one's going to be a fun one. Shiv Mandarin. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, uh, listeners, (laughs) this is unexpected. I will read the rest of this as my master Shivam commands. (laughs) Do continue, Thrall. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of people... Master Shivam, have uh, asked how they can help the show. And what I always tell them is tell a friend. That really helps out. If they want to take the next step, they can uh, leave a positive review wherever they get their podcast from. We love that and helps expose us to even more potential listeners. Then, of course, visit us on YouTube and you can comment, rate, and subscribe there. I think the proper colloquialism is ring that bell by subscribing. (laughs) It could be smash. (laughs) That really helps us, regardless of what you're doing. Don't break your computer, but do smash away. And uh, that really helps us. And don't forget to play us to the very end on YouTube, because that actually plays into their algorithms, too. Or if you want to take that super extra step... You can uh, join our wonderful supporter community by joining us at patreon.com slash commanderandmtg or going up to commanderandmtg.com slash donations and you can use PayPal there or you can go up to our GoFundMe and search for Commander and and use the the campaign with the C logo. The other one is for our former co-host, Sean and that's his version of a smile, but that will help us. We miss you, Sean. <laughs> we do miss you, Sean. That will help us bring uh, more video content to you, more editing, more shows, and more special guests. And speaking of video content, Phil and I have been able to see some of the first cuts of what we've been working oh, yeah. on. And gosh, I cannot wait to show it to you guys. <laughs> it's it really is exciting. seriously cool. We're super stoked, and hopefully soon we'll be able to uh, reveal our first episodes. And by the time listeners hear this, we will have already selected the final version of our new theme song for the video show, and we will have already committed to the layouts and done all sorts of things, and we'll put be putting life scores up. It's crazy, listeners. All of that will be done by the time you hear this show. I can't wait. I know. <laughs> As we've moved on to uh, Shiv Mandarin here, we have a wonderful show, don't we, Phil? We do indeed have a wonderful show lined up for our listeners. This episode, we are talking about something that's near and dear to both of us, certainly, and our special guest. It's the fusion. 
between Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons, right? Actually, that's just a pretext to have our guest on the show. This week, it's actually one of my favorite game designers, and he's recently moved from the D&D team to the uh, Magic team, which is a, in 1995, would have been like a world-shaking, groundbreaking thing, because ne'er the twain shall meet. But these days, it just means moving down the hall of your office. So our guest this week is James Wyatt, minister, author, game designer, and one of the just nicest dudes at Watsi. And definitely a person that Phil and I have both been very excited to try to get on. And we're super stoked that you're here. So uh, welcome, James. Thanks. Hi. It's good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) perhaps this would be a good time to remind our listeners that i am conked out in bed with a sore back so you know (laughs) a little sleepy but it's gonna be great now shivam did an excellent job introducing you to some of our listeners who are newer to magic and role-playing the world of gaming i suppose that means Hmm. um you were the author of the Art of Magic, the Gathering Coffee Table books, right? Yep. Like those big art books. Yep. I knew something was up when uh, you started releasing. It was. It looked like you were like, no, you know, I've I've created this PDF and I am going to release it to the world. The Plane Shift PDFs, where you started, I think, with Zendikar, and you were like, here's how to play in Zendikar in D and D. Right. That happened because one of the first things that I worked on when I came to the Magic team from D and D was the Art of Magic, the Gathering Zendikar. And I approached writing that book as if I were writing a D&D campaign setting, except there were no rules in there. Yeah, that was really cool. Thank you. And so kind of at home in front of the television and on my computer, I made up the rules that would go along with it <laughs> so that I could run a game for my team. And that's where Plane Shift was born, basically. Why did you do that? Why did I? Do, I mean, Zendikar is an obvious place to play D&D. And yes. when, when you're a D&D guy who's just been transplanted to the magic team and you want people to play D&D with you, then, hey, let's play in Zendikar because this is what I'm working on and I'm steeped in this world right now. We're all steeped in this world right now because, you know, sets, stuff, stories. Because I know that when I first saw the art books and they started coming out, my first thought was definitely like, holy crap, this is literally a campaign setting. And it's just missing the stat boxes. And a lot of the Magic fans who are not like hardcore D&D players from the olden days were just like, wow, look at this art book. Gosh, it's got a whole lot of setting detail in it unexpectedly. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my friends, you're in for a whole new world now. As a longtime D&D player, my favorite things have always been campaign settings. Yeah. Because I love the world building. I mean, stats are stats. I can get stats from anywhere. But it's the world building that I've always been into. And so seeing that kind of meticulous uh, detail that I love so much from D&D applied to magic is just mm-hmm. like, holy crap. This is what I've been waiting literal decades for. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, Mark Rosewater has uh, long been on the, you know, we don't want to cross the streams thing. And I'm like, well... Somebody had to be the first Ghostbuster, <laughs> and I'm real grateful that we finally got to cross the streams, especially now that I believe as of our recording, isn't it yesterday or today that Guilds of Ravnica, the uh, actual D&D book came out? I think it was this past weekend. Guildmasters of Ravnica. Guildmasters Guide to Ravnica. Wow. Wow. When I was a kid, card floppers and dice chuckers hated each other. <laughs> what? Man, where did you grow up? In the old TSR chat rooms, it was like seeing the Sega Genesis Super Nintendo Wars all over again. And it was real, real hardcore. But now we're the same tribe and it's amazing. Yeah. So now I'm just waiting for my legendary beholder and we'll be good to go. Hmm. 
Yeah, when do we get that? <laughs> I was saying before the show, I've run a, a D&D campaign, right? It's been about 12 years, and it started from True, True 20 and migrated to 4th edition. It's set in Eberron, which I know you had uh, maybe a little something to do with there. Yeah, <laughs> and it's called Tales of the Gold Beholder. Awesome. And there is a legendary beholder in that. But the gold beholder gives you the cold shoulder. <laughs> and rolls a boulder. <laughs> so, Phil, why don't you tell me more about your character? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm, and I'm not telling him about the uh, my campaign either. <laughs> but, yeah, we need some legendary beholders. We need the crossover in the other direction, Yeah, like, too. I want my illithids. I want my beholders. I need my... Dude. My drow... My Modrons on... <laughs> Where's the Modrons on Kaladesh, right? Modrons. Like, <laughs> Modrons on Kaladesh. I've got a D&D campaign to run. Wow. I love Modrons on Kaladesh. That would be awesome. Can you imagine a complete redesign of their visual look to fit in on Kaladesh? Hell yes, I can. Yes. Yes, I absolutely can. That would be amazing. Get Tony Dieterlizzi to come out and try to draw Modrons as the Kaladeshi style would be mind-blowingly cool. All right. That's pretty awesome. When does that happen? You know, here on Commander, what we do is we plant the seeds <laughs> and we let them grow. Uh, so. I mean, the most that's going to come out of this particular line of thought, to be clear, is I'm going to run a Planeswalker campaign. <laughs> <laughs> and there's going to be Modrons on Kaladesh. It's going to yeah. be amazing. Oh, my God. That would be so good. I would love to see Modrons and Aetherborn deal with each other. Like, just pure chaos versus pure law. That would be amazing. Yeah. So it's funny because ever since I started doing Plane Shift, I've had people on Twitter saying, so when are we going to see the other direction? I'm like, guys, you realize I write Plane Shift on my couch in front of the television. I can't do yeah. a magic set that way. <laughs> it's not the same process. But now that Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica has happened, who knows? Like, you'll never know until you try. The world is our oyster. Yeah. Our giant oyster that puts negative zero, negative one <laughs> counters on things. <laughs> Yeah, what a crazy card. Well, you know, it does have a, uh, a long-standing tradition, right? Because the legend set was basically a bunch of D&D characters made into magic cards. Mm -hmm. So you're just one small step from beholders in Magic the Gathering. It is a very small step. I mean, there's the terrible hurdle of what is their creature type. Maybe it's just beholder. That would be fine. They're horrors. Are they, though? No, I think beholder deserves to be beholder. Like, it's a beholder. You know, like the, I feel, yeah. I feel like if you're going to introduce beholders into magic, they need to literally just be beholders. Oh, wait, is evil eye still a creature type? Oh, yes, I, yes. I think it's just eye. <laughs> it is just eye because there was evil eye of Ormsvigor and then evil yep. eye of Urborg, and uh, then we just need to have evil eye of uh, multi many eyes. Uh, you know what? At this point, though, we're going to be starting to break rules and James is going to have to leave. So we're instead going to not talk about how to design beholders. I think we actually did break some rules oh, already. Yeah. <laughs> Shiv, Shiv, don't forget spy eye and unstable. It is a creature yes. eye spy. Oh, it is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and there's a card in Theros, which is like eye gouge. Which is an instant that can kill a Cyclops yeah. or do negative one, negative one to any target creature. Yeah. It is like the most flavorful kill card in all of Magic. I love that card. It is totally <laughs> useless because nobody plays Cyclopses, but it exists and it makes me happy that it exists. That is pretty awesome. Very flavorful card, though. I love it. Oh, yeah. Look at this. I is a creature type. <laughs> well, you know, that's only because they're too cowardly to actually put Evil Eye of Orms by Gore. The way it should be. 
after the sixth edition or tenth edition, whatever, great creature change, they got rid of all the fun creature names and just said, you're an I. I'm like, pfft. <laughs> I think the original text was Summon Evil Eye, if That's I recall right. correctly. That's right. In any case, that card is still <laughs> terrible. So it, it really matter. is. It's so it's bad. It's so bad. It was. It was Summon Evil Eye. Yeah, oh my God, when, that card when is we garbage. do Xanathar, Legendary Creature Eye, and then oh, yeah. non-eye creatures you control can't attack. Wow. Dude, that would be amazing. Make it happen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well... <laughs> listeners it's it's quality content like this that keeps everybody coming back and uh at, at this point let's hear from some of our sponsors actually each week we call out three of our patroni which is uh plural for patron james in, in the next novel can you use the word patroni no <laughs> and uh we want to thank our patroni we will continue to use the term even if james issues it <laughs> Mikey Limgenko or Limjenko and Harry Needham and of course Wizard's very own Gavin Verhey. I know him. Who has been uh, on the show enough times that we uh, actually renamed the show Gav Mandarin. So <laughs> all the official paperwork. He's like our official substitute host. Definitely unofficial. Very unofficial. So remember, new patrons, any of you who join us can get in on the funny name game we play with some of our older patrons. You have 140 characters between your first and last name on Patreon. In order to send us any message you want, James, if you had to pick a, a patron name, what would you pick? Seriously? <laughs> <You're>... <laughs> this is not the kind of question I was expecting when I agreed to be on this show. Um, I, can't, I can't create in this environment. <laughs> what's my motivation how can you be expected to work in this environment it's totally true (laughs) we ask ourselves that every every day (laughs) i love this show so much oh my god so we thought it would be interesting to our listeners if we started basically chronologically and walk through your career first starting as a minister which is why we're going to break the religion rule then all the way through to today where you are you know, making a bunch of stuff for would-be magic players in D&D and getting a bunch of magic players to play D&D. Yeah, buckle in. It's a long story because I'm old, which is why I threw up my back moving a wheelbarrow. At least you weren't asleep when you did it. That is the worst. That is true. Let me preface this with a little story because God knows oh, I've, yes. I've got stories to tell. In the year 2002, I want to say... In the dawn of time. In the dawn of time. So my girlfriend and I decided we were going to uh, take a vacation north to Seattle to visit my friend Stan! Exclamation point. Stan is a longtime D&D designer who is also a Dragonlance guy, which is why I've known him since my wee childhood. And he had said, yo, Tal, come up and visit. And I'm like, why, yes, Muhammad, I will come to Mecca. Thank you for asking. <laughs> um, and, and specifically... He was speaking to Talonthas, oh, right? Oh, yeah. He was definitely yeah. speaking to Talonthas, the Dragonlance fanboy, uh, hardcore extraordinaire. And, uh, yeah, so my girlfriend and I got in a car. We drove up to Seattle to visit because the rules at Watsi were a lot laxer about letting people in the door. <laughs> because these days, they're not going to let you pass the dragon. But Stan, it was just like, eh, whatever, we're going to walk around. And, like, he showed me the entire offices, like, here's the secret maps of Dragonlance unpublished products that aren't going to come out, and here's how we did this, and all these things that are just, like, 
now I'm just sitting there thinking about NDAs and like getting hives from the contracts that I must have broken by walking through <laughs> the entire building. But it was super cool because like, you know, I left with a giant box of foreign dragon life novels. But one of the other things he did was introduce me to like all the D and D designers. And first off, you'd lose a little bit of mystique when you walk in and see all the famous game designers sitting at like cubicles. Cause yeah. that's not like you're supposed to be in a dungeon and there's supposed to be like potions and other like weird G jaws and like, Oh, you know, there are potions like nonsense going on. Right. Like there should be like acid pits, <laughs> 10 foot poles everywhere. We tried that, but it was drafty and OSHA had some issues. <laughs> God, can you imagine that would, be, Oh, I should tell you about my insurance. Finish. Let me finish the story. <laughs> So the point was, Stan took me around and he showed me and he introduced me to James. And I got to meet James White, who's one of my, like I said, one of my favorite game designers. And Oriental Adventures had just come out for third edition. And I didn't own it yet because I'm a poor college student. And I was like, holy crap, Oriental Adventures is out. Oh, my God. Oh, Oh, I wish I could have that. And then he just gave me the copy off his desk, which I still have today sitting on my desk and i was like oh my god really that was the rokugan edition right yeah and then i was like can you sign it and he's like dude my name is literally in the front cover and on the front cover and i'm like <laughs> yeah but can you sign it and he's like oh okay and then he signed it and it was amazing and then stan took us out to a steakhouse which is exactly the place you would take two vegetarians and a bunch of other designers and that's where monty cook told me i was a terrible dm <laughs> That's the end of the story. <laughs> wow, it, it ended on an up note. Well, it's like, look, I had been running a D&D campaign for two and a half, three years at that point, but I oh. leveled my team like twice maybe in that time because uh-huh. the way our story was going was like, I would level them at the end of basically every big kind of epic chapter chunk. Like, yeah. we finished a thing, now we're going to do it. But my players were really big onto role-playing and talking and doing the story part. And we were like so caught up in that that nobody really minded that we didn't level anybody up. Now, Monty Cook, one of the greatest D&D designers ever, is sitting there like, I wrote a book that you're supposed to level every three sessions or four sessions or something. And you're telling me it's been two years? And I'm like, "Eh, if they want to level up, I'll level them up. Nobody's asked. And he was definitely uh, taken aback by this stand. You know, it's one of those things (laughs) where if everybody at the table is happy, you're a great DM. Look, man, this was a game where we were playing in a Dragonlance campaign where all of the ogres spoke Chinese, all of the elves spoke, um, let's see, no, the Salomnic spoke German, the ogres spoke uh, Chinese, <laughs> and we had a Dutch to Japanese dictionary. So everybody at my table was uh, like multilingual just in general in real life. So we were all like, so the game was played in like seven languages. Shivam, if you stop to listen for a moment, you can hear our listeners driving into concrete pylons. No, because, they're, <laughs> because they're so engrossed. This is Let me tell you about my character. <laughs> yeah, remember, you're the one who stopped me from telling me, James, about the campaign I'm running in the world he built. In the system he built. Your job is to rein me in, Phil. <laughs> We now know everything there is to know about Shiva meeting James, and then some. James, how did you meet D and D? Our first meeting—it um, was one of those—it was one of those um, things where you sort of pass each other in the subway and go on yeah. your separate ways. My brother was given a copy of the original um, three-book box set for Christmas of 1977, I think. At which point, I was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. 
And it was about the time that the first Lord of the Rings movie came out and The Hobbit was on TV and I was nine. So I picked up these books and I so desperately wanted to understand how this was a game and I couldn't. So that was our first <laughs> meeting. Yeah. Um, then two years later, the, the original um, D&D basic set came out. A friend of mine and I went in together on that. And the rest is uh, a very long history. I've, I've, yeah. I've been playing D&D without serious pause ever since. Did you understand how to roll a D4 when you first saw it? Sure. You just roll it. What? It didn't make any sense to me, man. I was just like, what is this caltrop that we're trying to throw around? <laughs> my, and my friend would pick it up and, and sum all the numbers on the bottom side. And I was like, I don't think that's supposed to whatever. Yeah, I couldn't figure out how to read the dice the first time because it didn't help that like the guy teaching me how to play D&D had two D4s that were numbered differently. So like you had to figure out which way to read the thing. Right. And I was just like, can we just not do this one? Yeah. When did you start writing for Dungeons and Dragons in whatever form? You were in Dragon and Dungeon, if I recall correctly. I was. But so when I was in high school, I self-published my first campaign setting. Mm. Nice. And by self-published, I mean I printed it out on a dot matrix printer and yeah. actually sold copies to friends of mine and teachers even in high school. Wow. Did you? I did. But seriously, when I was living in Ohio and working as a United Methodist minister, I found that um, writing D&D stuff replenished the energy that my job drained away. Very cool. So I started writing uh, in earnest for the magazines at that point. It was like six months after I left ministry in Ohio and moved to Wisconsin, dreaming of getting a job at TSR, that my first article was published in Dragon Magazine. That was the last issue of Dragon Magazine that was published before Wizards bought TSR. Hmm. So it was the December 96 issue, which didn't come out till the end of January 97, because that's when they could afford to print it. Those were definitely dark times at TSR. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I, I went to the game store and got my copy of that magazine on the day my daughter was born. Oh, wow. It was a good day. Wow, that's a momentous day. I mean, <laughs> for any D&D fan to get printed in Dragon Magazine is kind of one of those just like, it's almost like a, a rite of passage. Like you feel like you made it when you get it into Dragon. It's true. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, and I think by, that, by, the, by the time that was actually printed... I had also had adventures accepted for Dungeon, but their fate must have yeah. kind of been in limbo until uh, the acquisition took place and the print printing presses started rolling again. It was a scary time. It was. It was definitely weird when Watsi bought TSR. Everybody was like, what? Magic is buying Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> definitely a mind-bending moment. Who knew? Collectible card games, it's right? It's a fad, man. <laughs> this is something you do between D&D sessions. That's pretty much exactly right for, for me. Um, also, while I was in ministry in Ohio, and we were pretty isolated from any community besides the churches we were serving, my wife and I. And I was such a TSR D&D loyalist that I played Spellfire rather than Magic. <laughs> you did? I did. You were the guy? <laughs> I was that one guy. <laughs> what I enjoyed about Spellfire, though, is that it, it kept me immersed in D&D lore and art, especially art. Um, during the long stretches in between opportunities to actually play D and D, so it w that was definitely my fix <laughs> to, to keep me going in between games. Yes, I have a, a full set of the Dragonlance Spellfire cards that I pull out once in a while. Of course, you do. Well, you know what? When you have literally everything ever printed uh -huh. for a thing, <laughs> you need to have full sets of Spellfire cards. It doesn't count. Yep. That game was not 
not good. <laughs> it was not good. Yeah, I think it was Mark Rosewater who said that uh, they spent seven weeks on the first set. And that's just, uh, first of all, the pace is terrible. Like, that's got to be a grind. And then, you know, seven weeks isn't a long time to balance a card game, it turns out. Or design one from scratch. Yep. Kudos to them for being able to produce anything. Yeah, whoever made them do that, it was pretty terrible. There you go. Hey, another upbeat story. (laughs) (laughs) Did you run into magic at all during those times? Or when did you discover magic? So I knew magic existed, but because I was aware that Spellfire was sort of TSR's answer to it. But again, I was the loyalist, right? So I didn't, uh, I never played magic until after I was working at Wizards. And even then it took me a while to get into it at all. Much to my regret. I mean, if I had started collecting cards in earnest when I could get them for free at Wizards. I'd have cards going back to Odyssey. Oh, goodness gracious. And I don't. Yep. Yeah, it must be real grading when you're trying to find a card for your uh, EDH decks. Yes. And you're like, oh, I could have just grabbed this off of someone's desk. And <laughs> yep. nobody would have said nothing. Probably not out on go... the free table. Man, what was that like, though, when you got like an offer to work at Watsi or at TSR? I think there was some jumping up and down involved. Did you move to Seattle just to work there? Oh, or yeah. We were in Berkeley before that. My wife was working on a PhD, and I dragged her away from it. She oh. never finished, but it's a great job. <laughs> I mean, you've been at Watsi for a long, long time. Yes, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> well, it's it's not that. It's like, I work in Silicon Valley, man. Like, the idea of having a job for, like, 18 years or whatever it's been. Going on is, 19, yeah. Is, like, unheard of. It is. Yeah. And what Shiva means is the idea of having a job yeah. for 18 years. <laughs> right? Not just working at the same place. Yeah, just, like, a job. It is pretty remarkable, I admit. And it's pretty awesome. Especially in the games industry, in the role-playing industry, where it's definitely like, like, let's be honest, the role-playing games industry is just a very difficult industry to be in. Uh, Insofar as it's an industry at all, it's very, very small. Right. It's a small hobbyist industry, and there have been a lot of ups and downs. And maintaining that is just remarkable. It's just like awe-inspiring, frankly. (laughs) It really is. Think about it, dude. You're living the dream of so many of us, which is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) this is the dream damn it enjoy yourself (laughs) it is actually good to get that reminder once in a while it it, it is an awesome job but it is still a job everybody's like oh you get to play with magic card all day yeah that's a lot of spreadsheets man relax (laughs) (laughs) yes it is (laughs) it's a whole lot of magic cards don't look nearly as fun when they're in excel (laughs) yeah it's a ton of spreadsheets and terrible magic cards oh yes also true so when you started, it was uh, right after, right after, no, it was just before third edition. Right. It was the same year. Because uh, third edition, I remember I had moved to Seattle not to work on third edition or D&D or anywhere at Wizards of the Coast. And I remember it was like November and you know how November is in Seattle. It's cold and rainy. And I cracked those books for the first time and it was like, oh my. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it was it was an all new edition of D anD D. It had streamlined it. You could actually look up the rules. There was an index, and the <laughs> art was beautiful. Yeah. And the art was beautiful. Oh my god! Yeah. Third edition like literally changed my life. And now you were, you wrote a few books for that too, didn't you? Yes, I, I think <laughs> it would be fair to say dozens. <laughs> dozens, yeah. I'm not sure how that breaks down between what three and a half editions I worked on, but it is dozens total. Wait, three and a half? Ed- oh, yeah, because we're on fifth edition. So there's third, 3rd, 3rd.5, fourth, yeah. and fifth. fifth. Yeah. 
And to think it used to be like generations would go by between editions, right? Yeah. Like, well, I mean, I, I wrote for a second edition as well before I started at Wizards, obviously. Right. So I have a lot of your books. Thank you. I'm not saying, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, I'm not saying you need to come sign them or I'll bring <laughs> all of them. But uh, it would be nice. I will sign anything you put in front of me as long as my name is already in it. So after third edition, you were then instrumental in fourth edition. Yes. Where you altered the alignment system, right? That was one of you, one of your big things. That was mostly one of my big things, yeah. Rich Baker was also part of that. You know, yeah. just spread blame around equally. <laughs> fourth edition did a lot of really good things. It had a lot of really cool stuff in there. Yeah, I'm still playing it. Not that we're going to talk about my campaign, because you should talk about one of yours, Shivam. <laughs> So fourth edition comes and then, you know, it, it becomes quickly apparent that fifth edition is necessary and you worked on fifth edition as well, right? I, I did. Um, yeah, I was the lead writer for the player's handbook. That is so cool. It was it actually is. really, really cool. Man, what's it like writing a player's handbook? Yeah, the player's handbook. I mean, this was my about third player's handbook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Fine then, um, buddy. Jeez. <laughs> no. Uh, so what what was great about working on the fifth edition player's handbook is Jeremy Crawford, who was um, mm. basically the mastermind architect behind fifth edition, uh, working with Mike Merles. But Jeremy is a a wonderful human being, b uh, a fantastic editor, and has a tremendous eye and ear for writing and. I went through multiple rounds with him just working on the dwarf entry in the player's handbook. What should this look like? What should the tone be like? What should it feel like to read this? Um, which is just a, a level of, of deep immersion in text that made me totally goob out, as I'm sure you can understand, Shivam. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, it was just a delight. Fifth edition <laughs> is cool. I like it a lot. I mean, it's not the d and I grew up with, but, you know, it's never going to be. But... It's just the amount of people who have come to it and have come to D&D because of 5th edition is just, it warms the grognard heart in me. It right? is really like, quite quite amazing. There are people who play D&D that other people will watch. Yes. That is just so mind-blowing to me. Yeah, right? that's just the strangest thing ever. No, so streaming, D&D streaming is huge. And I, yeah. I distinctly remember conversations in... Uh, D&D departments of old of just laughing at the idea that people would actually want to watch anybody playing D&D. Right, um, yeah. But, but A, the fact that the rules are a lot more streamlined now than they were in the height of third edition, for example. Um, and B, the people who are doing it. Um, so my daughter is a huge Critical Role fan, and, and we now watch it as a family every night. It's like our, our one weekly TV show. <laughs> <laughs> that, that we you know have a scheduled time to watch it's delightful people talented voice actors uh doing a great yep. job bringing a story to life and wow they're doing it with D D, and that's really awesome and friend of the show reuben bressler is now streaming his own D D uh show with ravnica yeah that's very very cool did you work on the uh ravnica book Yes, I did. I was, I was one of the lead designers for that, too. Yeah, man, what a cool idea. I'm so glad that exists. Me, too. And, all, like, the dice and the whole thing is so neat. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, like, I guess we should probably transition a little bit to the things that our audience is here for. Oh, religion, you mean. Yeah, religion, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the origin of this is in the, uh, the free PDFs that you released. I think we talked about it briefly, the plane shift stuff. Uh-huh. How did you get that? published 
So um, th- there were a couple of insidious forces working to make it happen. Um, again, when I first started working on magic and was working on the Zendikar book, I remember having a conversation with Jeremy Jarvis, who was the senior art director, lead art director, something like that at the time, um, who's now like working on the magic franchise team, doing all sorts of creative stuff and working with partners and stuff. Anyway, so I sat down with Jeremy yeah. and he was, he said sort of his secret agenda for this book was pretty much exactly what happened that we have a book that details the world. And then there's this little supplement that you can download online that has D and D rules. So you can play there. So he had that vision originally. Um, and like I said before, I, ju- I just kind of started working on rule stuff because I wanted to run a campaign there. And then Adam Colby was the brand manager who was um, working with me and with Viz Media on publishing the, the books. And he loved this idea as well. And uh, eventually, Adam and I walked around the fourth floor asking various people if we could do this, like as a series of articles on the website or something. And we couldn't find anyone who said no. <laughs> we oh, looked, well, we tried, awesome. we really did. Uh, it, it was just, it was one of those sort of conventional wisdom things where after, I mean, literally 20 years of people saying, no, we're never going to do this. Um, it had become accepted knowledge that we're never going to do this, but nobody who was willing to argue that was still at the company. So we got <laughs> lots of people saying, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Sure, let's do it. Wow. Okay, <laughs> we did it. Sometimes that's really all it takes is just like going through and saying like, is this just tradition or is there yeah. some real reason? And if it's just like, oh, it's just because we're always, you know, eating toadstools raw. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> right. And that's just, that's so cool. That's, yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that, I guess it really would take just somebody like you to be able to go over and who is familiar with both kind of like worlds right. to be able to bridge this gap because definitely it felt like there was a lot of resistance, but that just might've been a phantom residual resistance of like long standing custom. Yeah. I mean, and within the company, even it was never sort of um, a unanimous opinion. The first thing I worked on at wizards was the, uh, Monsters Compendium, Monsters of Faerun book, 96-page monster book, came out after the Monster right. Manual. And yeah. there was a point in working on that where I was pretty sure the next thing I was going to work on was going to be Monsters Compendium, Monsters of Dominaria. What? Wow. Yeah. What? <laughs> but that never happened. That idea got shot down. Ah, uh, what could have been? Yeah. Uh, wow. We could have had stats for Phyrexians 20 years ago. Oh, my good gracious. <laughs> I think I still have my Monster to Faerun book. That was like one of the first splat books to come out. Why would you not have it? Because I'm a Dragonlance fan. Why would I have it at all? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> that's that's amazing. And so here we are, and I guess that's that is about 15 years later. You've released six Plane Shift PDFs, and uh, I'm uh, guessing there won't be a Plane Shift PDF for Ravnica. There will not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so why start with Ravnica instead of Dominaria? Ooh, good question. Ravnica is the most popular world that magic has ever had. So despite Dominaria, it still is the most popular. Well, like what? Ravnica, Innistrad, and Dominaria are like the top three. Yeah, that's it. I think any of those would have been fantastic places to start. I think an Innistrad hardback source book would be amazing. But Guilds of Ravnica, especially the way the set has been shaping up with this kind of noir theme, this really just cool 
like bolus versus like the residents kind of thing is fantastic. Like the stories have been great. And I think there's a lot of potential to tell more stories. Any of the past, like four sets, I would totally have run a campaign in. Yeah. And I think like basically you could have gone anywhere from like Ixalan, maybe even Amonkhet upwards and written a campaign setting for, and it would have been fantastic. I mean, I still want to run a Kaladesh game, not going to lie. When you were pitching it, James, did you have to make a presentation and then say, I'm the obvious candidate because I have written Sharn City of Towers? <laughs> no. No? Oh, <laughs> oh. oh well. <laughs> I didn't pitch Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica at all. That, I guess at the point where we start, first started having conversations about doing a book, I remember Mike Merle's putting together a document and we had a meeting at one point. And at, at that point, it was like, okay, given our timelines, we're probably looking at a Ravnica release you know, a, mm. a release that syncs up with Ravnica. So yeah. it's been in the works for a long time. Yeah, books are very hard to write. Yeah, turns out. Yeah, a lot of people think it's like a month, and it's like, no, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah, so the timing worked out. It's, uh, it's a Ravnica theme, and I'll be honest, you know, my son is getting maybe a copy, and I might be getting a copy too, so... <laughs> I finally got my copy today. Yay! Awesome! The one thing I, I was looking through uh, an early copy of it, and I was really excited to read it. I was hoping that there would be more sampled names in the book so that I would know <laughs> how you're supposed to name a Boros person. But, man, it really reads really well. And Ravnica oh, is definitely like – Ravnica always felt like a D&D campaign setting to me. So it's just really cool to finally see that come to fruition. I think it works great because the guilds give you such a solid anchoring in the world. Yes, um, and being able to take the the sort of sketchy renown system from the Dungeon Master's Guide and turn it into something really concrete, rooted in the guilds, was really awesome. Mm -hmm. I think about it a lot as the the sort of pre first step of making a character is coming up with this concept of what kind of person you want to be, and the guilds give you a, yeah. a, a starting point for that. You know, oh, cool, look at the Gruel. I want to be like that. Okay, that gives me that narrows it down the directions I'm going to explore. Yes, exactly. You know what it reminded me of? Uh, it reminds me a lot of Sigil from uh -huh. Pinescape because it's got that same kind of like factions and just darkness that's in like the the big city setting. And I thought that was really, really cool. It's a really neat direction to go in and it leaves a lot of room for cool stories to be told. Yeah, it is pretty awesome. Pinescape is interesting. I, the factions there are harder for me to wrap my brain around. They, mm. they don't give me the same kind of, oh, okay, I want to play one of these guys because that's the character kind of character I want to be. It's it's a lot more abstract. Like, oh, I want to play a guy who believes that all the gods are inferior to a greater god. Well, yeah, okay. Right, exactly. Yeah. In Ravnica, you get the feeling of more like, okay, well, I want to be the the defender of justice. Okay, well, join the Boros Guild. Okay, no. Now I want to be like an architect. Okay, well, let's go into like Selesnya. And it just, it feels really, it feels living. You yeah. know what I'm saying? It's yeah. Like, it's really cool. Yeah, it's it's one of the advantages of the uh, magic color pie, frankly, that the color identities are so strong. And so then combining them results in something just about as strong. And actually you can interpret it like three or four different ways, each one of the two color combinations. Yeah. Then since the guilds are associated, obviously, with, with the two color combinations, at least for a little while, then, uh, you know, it's easy to figure out what a Boros characters should be like. I haven't had a chance to look at my copies yet. I think they arrived at my local game store. Do you play with the alignment system in that? I mean, since you have a history of playing with alignment systems. 
No. Um, <laughs> the book doesn't change fundamental rules of D&D at all. It's, it's still a D&D setting. There was a while in the evolution of the text where uh, I talked a lot more explicitly about color alignment, and those references are all gone. But so you'll see a, a section in each of the guild entries that talks about sort of goals and philosophies. And if you read really closely, you will probably see, read between the lines where it says, this is white and this is green. <laughs> um, and yeah. these two forces within the Celestia combine to create its nature. But if you're not familiar with the color pie as a D&D player coming to it, you're not going to be like, what? Why are you talking about green people? That was one of the things <laughs> I actually was really actively curious about was, how to reconcile the mana system and the magic system of magic with D&D itself. But if you're just acting as if like the core rules themselves just function, then like are the basic D&D classes and stuff just alive in Ravnica? Yeah. Like you could be a wizard. So the way I have talked about it sometimes and had to argue this a little bit, D&D magic, you know, you always make the analogy of combining peanut butter and chocolate. What you don't want to do is combine peanut butter and carob, <laughs> right? <laughs> if, <laughs> if you're going to play D&D in a magic world, you want it to be D&D and magic, not mm. something that's like D&D. So like you wanted to keep D&D, D&D and magic like more as a, I guess, a, a flavor add-on? Right. It's like, so this is a combination of D&D rule system and magic IP. So the sure. magic IP is as pure as it can be, but the D&D rule system needs to be intact as well. If you were to go yeah. the other direction, you would want to be playing magic with D&D IP layered on, not playing something that's sort of magic-like, like Spellfire, <laughs> for example. Very fair. Very, very fair. What set did you start working on uh, magic on? Zendikar. Yeah, I came in while we were still working on stories for the Tarkir block. So uh, I wrote the story for Alesha, Who Smiles at Death, which was oh, great. kind of well-known. <laughs> I remember reading that, and I was really impressed with what you had done with it. Thank you. I mean, that story is like one of the most popular stories ever on the website. I mean, when we're linked from Out Magazine, we're getting a lot of readers that don't, don't normally come to our website. That was pretty awesome. It was fabulous. Thank you. Yeah, no, gosh, Tarky. That's a really long time now. <laughs> That's like, it's yeah, weird it's... to think about how long ago that was. So I, I made the transition in June of 2014. So I've been working on D&D for 14 and a half years. And now I've been on Magic for, what, four and a half years. All right. So now that you've been in Magic for four or so years, do you get to play it more now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I play Magic all the time now. Do you ever bust out your Spellfire decks and everybody looks at you and then you sadly put it away? <laughs> no. I, I might, in fact, still have Spellfire decks in the garage somewhere, but no, I haven't busted them out in quite some time. <laughs> I think that's for the best. I think what uh, what Shivam is working around to is the very delicate question we have for most of our guests, which is, uh, <laughs> do you play Commander? Commander is my preferred form of magic. Because I work on the creative team, really, um, it... As soon as I started, there was sort of a, a weekly tradition of knocking off work a little early on Friday afternoons and playing Commander. And as a, a more casual, fun, friendly format, it was well-suited to those of us on the Magic Creative team who don't necessarily approach Magic with the same degree of um, competition and rigor that other people in working on Magic do. So, I mean, for us, uh, 
Commander is much less intense. <laughs> and I know that's not true for everybody who plays Commander, but it is for us. Well, it's definitely for me. <laughs> yeah. So that's been our pattern off and on in various configurations now for years. So yeah, I play Commander as often as I can and usually around weekly. What's your favorite Commander? Hmm. Favorite commander or favorite commander deck? Both. So the, the, the deck that I have right now that I'm happiest with is uh, Carador Ghost Chieftain deck. Oh. Um, the weird thing about <laughs> it is that I built it around death triggers rather than ETB triggers or anything else. So it's like, yes, I, I'm going to be sacrificing stuff right and left. Please kill my things. They'll just go into my other hand, which is the graveyard on my table. You're one of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's a ton of fun. And it's probably my strongest deck. My most kind of wildly crazy woohoo deck is my Elf Hydra deck with Dwynen uh, as the commander, where I play a lot of elves. And then. <laughs> For those of you guys who might not have missed that, who might have missed that, he said Elf Hydra. Not yes. just elves, yeah. Elf Hydra. Elves and Hydra. <laughs> so basically, you're using all the mana from the elves to make really big Hydras, plus all the elves are making each other huge because that's what elves do. So they're kind of like Elf Hydras, too, when, you know, some elf has 16 plus 1 plus 1 counters on it and has plus 3 plus 3 from all the other elf lords on the battlefield. And you're using Dwynen Guiltleaf Dean? Yes. And is Dean or is it Dane? Is it Dane? I think it's Dane. Yeah, okay. But who knows? It's um, English. All I know is that Dwynen's got his elite, and that's all that matters. Um, yes. But no, I got to actually play against both of these decks, didn't I? At, at, <laughs> I think um, so. When you came to TwitchCon? You got to annihilate both of those decks, yeah. <laughs> well, no. I mean, one of those games was really, really close. Your Hydra deck was really cool. Uh, I got very lucky in winning that one. Your Carador deck didn't really go off that time. Right. That one, it's like it's, there are some games where nothing ever ends up in my graveyard, and I'm just kind of stuck. But, you know, once a Deadbridge chant. Yeah, the one where it's morbid and then you draw cards. Right. Once things start stocking my graveyard, then then things get moving. The Deadbridge chant is, yeah, that's a good one. That card is so good. It was in my uh, Hapatra deck, so. Yeah, Deadbridge chant is uh, four black green and enchantment. When Deathbridge chant enters the battlefield, put the top 10 cards of your library into your graveyard. At the beginning of your upkeep, choose a card at random in your graveyard. If it's a creature card, put it onto the battlefield. Otherwise, put it into your hand. Yeah. 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 That's remarkable. So that's good in for being good and putting creatures out on the battlefield, but also in getting the graveyard momentum going. It makes Carador suddenly much cheaper to cast and gives him stuff to cast from the graveyard you need to have some some kind of uh, garbage stocking mechanism otherwise right. your deck just doesn't go anywhere and if they do have two sacrifice uh death triggers then you can get two death triggers because it comes back you sack it cast it right <laughs> sack it right nice so i have all these creatures that, that basically have spell effects on their death triggers like okay i'm going to destroy target enchantment now by sacrificing i don't know kasali pride mage or whatever and then I get counters on Omnixilis because a creature has died and just sick things happen. <laughs> yeah. That Omnixilis is so obnoxious. Yeah, it really is. It's the one that like gets just plus one, plus one counters left and right. And kills you when you search your deck. Yeah, that was the one that it yeah. does 10 damage to you when you search your deck. And you sacrifice a creature. It was not nice when yeah. I was sitting there with like, I had my Titania deck. And I couldn't f fetch for land because he would just start <laughs> nugging me for 10. And I'm like, this is not, this is not going to go my way. <laughs> yeah, Obnixilis tends not to survive on the battlefield very long in general. So 
You have two green-based decks. Of course, there's some other colors in the Carador one. Can I talk about more decks? <laughs> yeah, sure. Why? But why did you choose Carador and Dwynen? Not that we won't talk about the others, but why these two in particular? I think Carador came out of just talking with my daughter about stuff. She really was playing around with Carador for a while, and I took that mission over and made it awesome. Dwynen... <laughs> Not sure why I ended up with Dwynen. I think that could be just about any mono green legendary elf and it would be fine. We need better elf lords, just saying. Just in case, I don't know if there was a member of the creative team here who wanted to talk to anybody on the design team about, say, making a better elf legend. I'm <laughs> just saying it would be really nice. Hmm. We kind of like have Izuri and Dwynen and that's kind of about it. And like Reese, but Reese is not really an elf deck. Reese is like a token deck. That was actually my first commander deck was Reese the Redeemed. Like, I love Reese, but that's not a, that's not like an, a traditional elf deck, right? I mean, I don't know, I guess, what I would even want beyond, like, Izuri, because Izuri is basically exactly what an elf deck wants. <laughs> or, like, Marwin. Marwin would be pretty cool. Oh, yeah. So, on the creative team, what sorts of things have you been doing? Like, do you direct the story, or do you, like, decide the arcs? Because I know you wrote some of the short stories, but, like, in the grand scheme of magic, like, what do you do on the creative team? Well... The role of our team has been shifting somewhat, and my job is kind of weird on the team um, because the art books, I do the art books, and that's something that nobody else does because I have a sort of history of being of working on long pieces of text. <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple. Just a couple. What is it, two million words? More. You know, I don't know. I, I heard once somebody say that your first million words are crap, so I started trying to think about how much I've actually written, but that would be hard to figure out. Yeah, don't don't try to do the math right now. Yeah. Well, you would have to arbitrarily decide when you stopped writing crap. And from what I can tell, you've been writing really good stuff for years. So. So let's see. Uh, we we are not doing the web fiction anymore. That is uh, coming from the franchise team, working with outside authors. Which has been a surprisingly great experiment. I'm really enjoying the stories. Yeah. Turns out, people who write stories for a living or tend to be pretty good at writing stories. So we do, we still do world building. Um, and I tend to have my fingers in just about every world guide we do anymore for similar reasons. And then I work on turning them into art books. I work on creative text, leading outside teams of writers to do names and flavor text. Um, I don't do as much concepting as say Doug Beyer does, at, um, writing art descriptions for cards, but I do it occasionally. I've ended up with some weird sort of internal writing projects recently. Internal writing? Guidelines for our teams and for working ah. with, with people outside and stuff like that. Cool. Um, I write D&D books from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess once you have it in your system, it's hard to just walk away forever. Yeah. I'm just thinking back on like the last three worlds have basically been so robust and rich with like just story and setting detail. Like Dominaria, obviously, you guys blew out of the water. Ravnica got its own hardback book, for God's sakes. <laughs> and Ixalan feels like it could be an amazing setting unto itself. Of the settings you've worked on so far, what do you think is the most rich to kind of explore further? Wow. Um, some of them definitely have more detail present in them now than others. Um, Dominaria 
obviously would be way up there in the scale. And Ravnica is pretty high as well. Although it's interesting because working on the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, tangent alert, it turned out to be a really different approach to a campaign setting than what D&D usually does. Um, because like we did maps of Ravnica, that's huge. Uh, not of Ravnica, but of the 10th district. That's something we'd never done before, but they're there in the book. But we don't like name streets or tell you where particular buildings are or who runs this in, which is the sort of detail that uh, a D&D campaign setting book traditionally would be full of. Um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, that information doesn't exist for Ravnica. And rather than right. make it up, um, we focused on the guilds as places to root your character and sort of the the flavor of the different precincts within the 10th district and telling you what could be here instead of what canonically is here, which I think is a, a much more DM friendly approach to creating making Ravnica your world and creating adventures in that framework. It's not like, oh, here's this guy that has this terrible scheme. It's like, here's an adventure idea. Some guy has a terrible scheme to do this. That feels almost more like Gygaxian in like <laughs> <Thank> style. <you. laughs> well, I mean, you know, because like second edition, third edition were definitely more about here's all the things you could possibly want to know. First edition was more like, here's a bunch of things, do right. something with it if you'd like. Right. I mean, in in Ravnica, it's very it's very structured. And in, in this, I mean, I wrote like three hundred one sentence adventure hooks for that book. That's awesome. So, um, and Chris Perkins fixed many of them. So you know, it's not just sort of vague and nebulous. It's just concrete in a different way. Sure. It's, it's concrete ideas rather than concrete facts that you have to master. If that makes sense. I, yeah. Yeah, I love it. I mean, some of my favorite source books have always just been kind of here are places to jump off of. Mm -hmm. And here's like seeds to build off of as opposed to like, you know, Tom Perkins is the innkeeper at the Pig and Whistle for the past 38 years and has a lot right. of secret things going on. Yeah, right. no, it's like, that's fine. <laughs> Why don't you tell that story? And I'm going to go do something else. Yes. Exactly. That's what I liked about the Eberron books in particular. It always provided like three or four different hooks mm. so that you could hook into them if you want, but you certainly got the flavor of the district and could then explore based on just whatever you found interesting. So I'm kind of glad to hear, like going back to the map, that there's a map of the 10th district, but it's not like any places are specifically defined or many of them at right. least. It's got, that's really it's cool. It's got the big landmarks, but otherwise that's all. Did you ever see the second edition box set called Time of the Dragon, which was the Talatus box set that was yes. done by... Because uh, that's what this feels like to me. It's like the map that I saw in the uh, Ravnica book felt a lot like those old maps for like the Dragonlance setting, where it was literally just, here's a map of the city, and it's got just houses and map things on it, but literally everything was blank except for like the palace, right? Yeah. And so... It just gives you so much room to kind of grow and evolve. And uh, it's so cool. Gosh, I'm so excited for <laughs> being like, I really want to just jump in and start like running a game in this world. Good. That is the goal. Yeah. I've had, have, I've had his campaign brewing for uh, running in Kaladesh since the, uh, the PDF for that came out. And I'm just looking for a looking for group, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> And like waiting for my child to be old enough that I can actually get away for a game night. This is why my daughter has been playing D&D &D since she was eight. <laughs> yeah, well, my kid is like four. so Yeah, okay, you got some time yet. No excuse. Uh, all, all of my children played from about four years until they turned eight or so. <laughs> my son knows what a D looks like now. <laughs> we, we've gotten to that part. He's like, D, 
and D. All right. <laughs> That's all you need to know. Roll this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember driving my daughter to kindergarten when uh, when D&D miniatures were a new thing. And they had those tiles, those like five by seven yep. tiles. So she was taking the tiles and writing down on a piece of paper, you know, these are the tiles to use in this dungeon. And these are the miniatures that live in these yeah. rooms. So basically she was doing her dungeon design using those those tiles when she was in kindergarten because that's my daughter that's awesome that no, is no that's awesome. that's my i i still have the first dungeon my son ever drew on a, on graph paper uh-huh. then they have created countless dungeons and in fact now my daughter will do what amounts to improvisational role-playing with her friends where they do warrior cats oh awesome and um my son plays on a lot of different role-playing servers for different games, including games that aren't role-playing games, but you have to play in character. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's just really, really awesome. That's awesome. And my son, of course, is he's now in a D&D campaign, uh, two of them, and he wrote a D&D campaign when he was six. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's really awesome. D&D's had a, a big and oversized impact on uh, my family, my sure. whole family. Yeah, so my daughter is 21 now. And she started running uh, the Waterdeep Dragon Heist adventure, nice. and I get to play in her campaign. That <laughs> must awesome. be friends. It is pretty a awesome. Great feeling. It is really great. I mean, she has DM'd for me off and on, like one shots, and done some pretty awesome, amazing stuff over the years. But yeah, I'm running and playing in her campaign that she's running. It is great, and she's really good. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yep. That's really cool. Yep. Oh man. I'm a proud dad. Oh, you should be. That's amazing. James, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. We can, we, and we've proven it. We can talk for hours. We didn't even realize how much time had gone by. Would you come back on the show either in like some kind of really weird discussion with Sheehan about religion? (laughs) Or did we get to the part that I was going to break all the rules of our show for? Or at another time, and we'll just talk Commander at some point, too? Like I never told you about the rest of my decks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. And before we, we get to the end, how many decks do you have? Uh, active right now, I have six, I think. So it's not a, not a crazy number, and I take them apart when I'm done with them. I'm, I'm fiddling with my weird card draw deck that has primarily been a Niv-Mizzet deck and is then became another Niv-Mizzet deck, and now I added in green, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. And then I have an Obzadat deck, and I have a, a Quende deck. That's five. Oh. Yeah. It's, nice. It's, hey, it turns out First Strike is relatively cheap, and giving them all Double Strike is kind of awesome. But... <laughs> I don't think I've seen anybody actually use Quende yet, of all of the like Dominaria legends that came out. Oh, that's, that's too bad, because he's awesome. Yeah, I've considered it, but I haven't been brave enough to build it. He's not a soldier. He's not going to go into my soldier's deck. Right. <laughs> well, so it's it's secondarily a knight deck, but it really needs help. It needs a lot of work that I haven't had time to put into it. Yeah, but you get to put white knight into it. Yeah, it is in there. You can always start <laughs> doing what the guy who uh, made um, the frog Gitrog does, which is every set you just slyly put in one extra card to make your deck better. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, there is certainly, I mean, I, I see those comments in our, our database all the time. Oh, yeah, I'm t- definitely putting this in my 
in my commander deck. You know what? <laughs> That's so cool. If there's going to be a perk to being a magic designer, it really right. ought to be that you should make the card you need for your deck. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the downside is, you know, I, I know cards two or three sets out that I can't wait to put in my commander deck, but I can't yet. <laughs> yeah. So we'll have to have you on at least maybe we talk about your Quende deck because neither of us has seen one of those in action. We haven't even seen the card in action. So you have a whole commander deck. Wow. Maybe we can convince you to uh, type up a couple of the deck lists and we'll share those with our listeners. That at might some just point. be embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we talk about your Quende deck, we're going to need the, the, the list itself. So All right. <laughs> I'm sure it's better than you make it out to be. Yeah, it turns out that Phil and I are actually just big old D&D goobers that we've been like, <laughs> yeah, we hiding for a D&D very long time. time. <laughs> oh, we haven't been hiding it. It's just we don't talk it's about it. It's just never come up before, and we've had a lot of uh, buildup, let's say. <laughs> so, <laughs> to play off of something you said earlier, this isn't Dungeons and Dragons in. <laughs> no, but it sure felt like it. Yeah, but today it did. That's okay, though, because you know what? Uh, it's not every day that we get to have one of the best D&D designers no, right. join us. And we're super grateful to you, James, for joining us. Yeah, thanks, James. It really was a lot of fun, as evidenced yeah. by the amount of laughter that i see spiking my microphone thing right. <laughs> right like i've just been watching my uh my track redlined every few minutes just because yeah I keep laughing into the microphone yeah we're gonna have a lot of job running the <laughs> declipper it's called <laughs> listeners as always uh you folks rock too thank you for hanging out with us as long as you have this has been an absolute pleasure to talk to james and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did recording it. yeah just let us know and what you think of it write in and we'll share the, that feedback with james you can always tweet at us too special thanks to our patrons who show their support by donating to us so we can keep on improving the show without your continued support we could not do this we wouldn't we just couldn't and we certainly wouldn't have produced the video show that is imminent by the time you actually hear this one if you want to be one of the people who helps support us, visit us at patreon.com slash commanderandmtg or go to commanderandmtg.com slash donations. If you're a PayPal person, that's the perfect way to do it. Or go to our GoFundMe and search for Commanderin. Now, James, we mentioned Twitter before and it, it broke my concentration because I know and I follow you. I've been following you for years. How can people get a hold of you if they want to chat with you a little bit more about anything? Ministry... <laughs> Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. Right. Well, on Twitter, I am at Aquella James because Aquella is my D&D campaign setting that I printed and sold uh, in high school. That's A-Q-U-E-L-A James. Are any of those available for purchase? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, the weirdest thing happened to me on Twitter the other day, though. Somebody posted, hey, Aquella fans, did you know that James didn't actually take these pages about his campaign setting down. He just moved them to a different place. Like five years ago, A, I don't know that there are actually any Aquila fans, but if there are, oh my God, I love you and thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and B, that was just really weird and random and out of the blue. But so yeah, I have a website. It's um, aquella.com and there's... There's one page that I think is at www.aquilla.com that sort of branches out to all the other places where I have a an internet presence. Awesome. I should verify that, but that is, in fact, the www. People will figure it out. Yeah, whatever. The internet's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can reach us by going to our website, commanderandmtg.com. Our email is cast at commanderandmtg.com. 
You can find us on all of the social medias by searching for Commander and MTG Podcast. This episode was edited by David Mitchell. Our theme song was created for the podcast by Nate Burgess. Our logo was created for the podcast by Mr. Picto with assistance from Kelly DeLuca. You can find more art from Mr. Picto by going to mrpicto.co.uk. Special thanks to tech whizzes Jesse Thompson and Graham Frank and to Justin for the server space. Commander and MTG Podcast is unofficial fan content permitted under the fan content policy. It has not been approved or endorsed by Wizards. Portions of the materials used are property of Wizards of the Coast. Copyright Wizards of the Coast, LLC. Special thanks to Mike Condon, editor of the Brothers War podcast, for the guitar version of our theme song. James, we have a tradition here at Commanderin where we ask our guests to kind of say the last line of the show. And not that you really need the assistance being an accomplished writer, <laughs> but we have included three samples you may choose from if you wish to uh, take us out with one of those. Or you could say whatever you want. Commanderin, not always accurate, but always entertaining. <laughs> I love that Truer one. than you realize, <laughs> sir. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. And we will see you next week.